listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Soil Talk. Today, we've got a guest from Calcium Products. It's Glenn Howell, our technical sales agronomist. Glenn and I have known each other for about 15 years, worked on different soil fertility issues together. Uh, both of us decided that we were undereducated and had to go back for a master's degree. So now we're probably over-educated for the amount of intelligence we have. Glenn, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Calcium Products? Yeah, sure. So Calcium Products is a company based in Iowa. Our business office is located in Ames, but our production plants are a little farther north, Calendon Highway 20 corridor. We've been in business for over 30 years now. Um, we do primarily just two products. So we take mined quarried rock, either limestone or gypsum, uh, grind it into powder, and then form it into a pellet so that the finished product is a pelleted limestone and a pelleted gypsum. Um, sales are focused in the upper Midwest, but we also ship internationally, um, both in North America and outside of North America. We've grown considerably in the time that I've been with Calcium Products, which has been since late 2008, and we're looking to continue that growth in the future. Very good. We'll start off with the liming side of it. When we think about liming, you know, a lot of people focus on uh, ag lime. Other people focus on pell lime. It's always seemed to me like there's kind of a place for uh, each of those two products. When you're visiting with a grower, you know, what kind of conversation do you have about when's the right situation to use ag lime, when's the right situation to use bell lime? Yeah, I think that's a, a very much a common occurrence, Tim. You know, I think there is a place for both ag limestone as well as pelleted limestone, which um, we are a supplier for that. I think that the difference is kind of comes back to how different growers uh, manage differently some of the soil conditions that they have that are uh, unique or, or vary across the landscape. Um, ultimately, it also comes down to is kind of what the future for each grower looks like. Are they looking to, um, maybe they have a large proportion of their acres is just rented, and that's kind of a year-to-year thing, in which case I would expect them to manage things completely different or at least considerably different than a grower who maybe has an established land base that's uh, mostly owned and is at a different time in their um, farming career. So perhaps, you know, um, mid to late career versus early career. I think that makes a lot of difference in terms of how their philosophy um, varies as well as how they just kind of go out doing different things and look at uh, making an investment in, in certain areas like pH. Yeah, you know, when I think about ag lime, there's kind of a slam dunk that almost always makes sense. You own the ground, you've got heavier soil, heavier soil textures, CEC, you know, 20 to 25 or above, and you need to make a big correction. You've got soil pHs that are running, you know, 5.5 or below. So if you got heavy soil, you need to make a big correction in, in pH. You know, maybe your buffer pHs are running you know, the very low sixes, a 6.1 six to a 6.3, and your soil pHs are running, you know, a 5.0 to a 5.5. And, I think, again, you own that ground, so you're into that long-term investment. That's kind of the no-brainer for ag lime. But the other side of it with pell lime, if you don't own the ground, especially like you just mentioned, Glenn, if your lease is short, 
you don't have a big correction that you need to make, maybe your soil pH is, you know, five, nine, six, six, one, and you got extra soil. That's kind of a slam dunk for the pelletized lime, pelletized lime, limestone. But there's a long in between in there where, you know, guys have to make a decision and maybe both tools make sense. And I think that those, all those different examples exist out there. Um, are certainly a wide range of soil conditions across Midwest that, that I've been encountered with at different times. Um, it's the pH, as we talked about. It's also the soil buffer pH, which I think actually plays a larger role in terms of how much, uh, how difficult is it going to be to amend the soil from the given conditions to something different. And if the buffer values are considerably different on the same piece of soil, or the same values, um, that's going to make a large role or large impact on how much is being applied, how well the lining application is actually going to be effective, and also how long is it going to be effective. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, as you talk about that soil pH versus the buffer pH, sometimes that gets tough to explain to a grower. How, how do you explain that difference, Glenn? I look at it and kind of describe things in that the buffer pH is something that the lab can estimate and utilize their resources to help us understand better. The soil pH is a measurement that each lab's going to do, but the buffer pH is just gonna say, give an indication to how easily or how difficult is it going to be to change the pH from where it's at now to a different value. Um, it's a lot of it's associated with cation exchange capacity, with soil texture, but it also is highly associated with the native soil properties and what's been done for soil management over time. In other words, soils that have had a long history of nitrogen application, those soils have a lot of reserve acidity, which is the hydrogen ion that remains behind after the plant uses the nitrogen application. There's a lot of things that the soil acidity leaving behind influences, and buffer pH is one of those challenges. Sure. You just talk to a grower about uh, what they want to do for liming going forward. You know, some difference, of course, is, is uh, what's that grower's crop going to be? How do you look at, say, corn, soybeans versus alfalfa as far as where they want to be or, or other crops? Yep. So corn, soybeans, um, there's certainly different philosophies out there. I would guess, expect that your philosophy and my philosophy probably have a lot of conjunction, but may not absolutely overlay each other. I look at corn and soybeans as being sensitive to pH, but not as sensitive as other crops, specifically forage crops like alfalfa. So if I'm talking with a grower in the Midwest um, and we're looking at what a good target soil pH is, I'm usually in that 6.0 to 6.3. So we're still on the acidic side of neutral, which is seven, but we're a little closer to that, but not quite as absolutely um, focused on that as we would be for an alfalfa crop, in which case we're usually in that 6.8 to seven. So really close to exactly neutral. And I think that just goes back to how different fertilizers or how different nutrients respond to their environment. Um, most nutrients respond a little easier, have better solubilities and availability if we're on the slightly acidic side of neutral. 
yeah, that's always a challenge with those soils that are neutral, the slightly higher pH or even very higher pH is nutrient tie up. And, and that's one of the things we talk to growers about on our side is one reason we want you to do, you know, more intensive sampling than just a composite sample to see what your soil pH is, is a lot of times there's a lot of variation. And with that variation, we can find areas where you probably don't need that lime source. And we can find other areas where you needed a lot worse than you thought you did when I, you took that composite sample. Um, any conversations you have with growers about, uh, you know, grid sampling, zone sampling, that kind of thing versus composites beyond that? You know, I, I've, I've had that story repeated to me numerous, numerous times from both growers uh, and other agronomists. And that 99.9% .9 of the time, the composites when look at things for that basis versus a more specific grid or zone, depending on how philosophy is for the individual, the grid or zone provides, we may spend the same amount of cost over that farm or that field, but we're putting it in a more responsive place as far as the dollars, and we're seeing a better return because of that. So we're making a, a better, wiser investment of our investment there, and we're making the dollars um, work for us in a better, more responsive way. One of the other things that I've noted here, mostly so in the last 10 years, but uh, maybe a little bit longer than that, is that we're getting stratification of pH. So we typically take a soil sample, we're taking a zero to six or maybe a zero to eight inch sample. We're putting that in a bag, sending it off to the lab. We get the results back and everything is calibrated to either a six or eight inch um, value for each university in each state. One of the challenges that I'm noticing is, is that, and this is from some research that the USDA did a few years ago, kind of confirmed it up in North Dakota, is that as we put a lot of nitrogen today on or very close to the soil surface, we're getting an acidification zone and the pH values in that, you know, maybe the top, top two or three inches is a lot different and more acidic typically than it is if we compare that versus a 0 0.6 or 0 0.8 depth, depth. And again, it goes back to where are we putting our nitrogen? What are some of the things that that affects? And what's the end result after things have gone, a, kind of gone down the road a little bit? So as we're doing that, I think that there's a lot of cases where um, if we, we've seen some problems or we know that there's some concerns from either recent or historic basis, you know, looking at things in more detail for either um, a grid or zone soil samples versus a composite makes a tremendous amount of sense. But I also think there's some opportunities and maybe some possibilities of looking at things on a vertical basis and doing some shallow as well as a normal soil and soil depth analysis. Yeah, that's a good point, Glenn. And that's been my experience as well. And I've pulled shallow samples and it makes a difference when the grower limed last and, and I specifically target no-till. So if you're in, in no-till application and you, like you said, you're putting a lot of uh, nitrogen on the soil surface or near the soil surface, um, and then you're also liming on the soil surface, if it's recently limed, a lot of times those uh, pHs are quite a bit higher in that top two inches or three inches. But if it hasn't been limed for quite some time and your six inch sample showing you that, you know, maybe you've got a, a pH of uh, 6.1 or 6.2, oftentimes that three inch sample will show you that you're something more like a 5.8 and you're in a lot worse condition than you thought you were. So that's a really good point. Do you recommend to those growers then that 
find that uh, stratification that they lime a little bit more often, maybe a little lower rates. I mean, your your overall lime application for correction uh, probably wouldn't be any different as far as, you know, tons per acre or pounds per acre, but you just might want to do it more often in smaller amounts. Is that the thought? Yeah, I think that's definitely the philosophy that uh, we want to support out there is look at liming, putting on smaller quantities, usually a few hundred pounds, but doing it either annually or every other year or as close to that as makes sense, given your situation and details. Um, again, we're not trying to fix or correct the whole six-inch depth there, a whole, whole eight-inch depth. We're just really focused on where the germination is going to take place for most seeds, um, where nitrogen application and a lot of other management takes place and making sure that the conditions is, are as optimum in that zone as we can make them. And uh, pH being one of those master variables that affects genetic potential. It affects nutrient availability. It affects biological activity. It affects how well different things work together or don't work together. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to look at pH management more specifically and do it not only, again, on a horizontal, but also on a vertical type of basis. That's a pretty good point. You know, we get those recommendations back from the lab or back from our own software, which basically use the same recommendation uh, theory or or formulas the laboratory uses. pH, there's not a lot of, a lot of argument about how much uh, lime it takes to neutralize a certain pH given a certain buffer pH. Pretty much everybody's going to come up with the same answer in the end. But we kind of kid ourselves when the lab report comes back and it says, you know, you need three ton of lime to make a correction to uh, six inches deep from a soil pH of, you know, 5.6 to a soil pH of 6.3 or 6.5. That's not going to happen overnight, especially if you're no-till. There's no magic that's going to make that entire six-inch depth magically change in acidity overnight. That's going to take years. And in the meantime, you're going to keep adding nitrogen fertilizer and add acidity to the soil. So we kind of kid ourselves that these laboratory recommendations are what's actually going to happen out there in the soil. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also a case to be made, and it varies by geography or by individual states, but I think that some states are much more, have spent a lot more research, a lot more history, have a lot better understanding and thorough understanding of the soil conditions that they represent in a given geography than other states do. And I'm not out here to, to pick on any one state or hold one state as being the you know top of the heap, so to speak. But I think that there's a lot of research dollars that have been focused in other areas of soil management for a number of years. As you said, pH has kind of been recognized and, and set aside as being, you know, we need to fix this and need to do a good job at it. But there's been um, less investment in research dollars and less interest as a um, kind of on an agronomy basis overall for a number of years in soil pH as compared to other things like nitrogen stabilization products or like phosphorus enhancing products or other areas of soil fertility have seen the, to capture a lot more interest, uh, again, both from a grower basis as well as from research dollars overall. Yeah, I guess when it comes down to it, lime just isn't sexy, is it? <laughs> 
I, uh, I certainly agree, Tim, and, and that's not the terms that I would use um, today, but I think that's a very appropriate term. I'm glad that you went ahead and used it. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that nitrogen application. And we kind of talked about, you know, when you're throwing nitrogen on, on the soil surface and the acidity that uh, is created there, I talked a little bit about as we add additional nitrogen into our program, you know, over time, that we can't expect the pH change that we're shooting for from a lime application to be complete when we're offsetting that with acidity from added nitrogen fertilizer. What number do you use for a grower as you're talking to him about kind of where he needs uh, to be for a lime application to break even with his nitrogen application? You know, Tim, I'm kind of a simple math guy based on my background as a simple Southeast Iowa native farm boy. Simple math always makes sense to me, and it's, it's a little pretty easy for me to remember that no matter what form of nitrogen or what product of nitrogen we use, urea, UAN, anhydrous ammonia, ammoniated phosphates, manure, across the board, all of them are acidic, and all of them acidify at the rate of at least two pounds of limestone per unit of nitrogen. And when I say unit, I'm deferring or differentiating between um, actual units of nitrogen as compared to pounds of a given material at a certain analysis. So 100 units of nitrogen from urea is equivalent to 100 units of nitrogen from 32%, but the pounds or the amount of each material would vary based on its analysis specifically. But it's at least two to one. Um, Some products are far more acidic than that. Um, There's some philosophies out there that say they can be as much as seven pounds of limestone per unit of nitrogen from certain ones. But at the end, they all acidify and it's at least two to one. Yeah, I usually use a number of 1.8. I, you know, I worked for a lab for a lot of years, so I had to have at least another decimal point in there to pretend I was smarter than the people around me. Has it worked for you? No, not really. Nobody actually believes it. (laughs) (laughs) So Glenn, one other topic I just kind of wanted to touch on is, you know, we talked a little bit about ag lime and of course for, you know, those who need a little extra definition, we're talking quarried lime. It's kind of the waste product from the construction industry, the things that don't make it into concrete, that don't make it into road gravel. A lot of times it's kind of the fines. Again, can be a good product. Fineness of grind makes a really big difference. So you need a lab analysis. They can check it both for the purity of the calcium carbonate or other equivalencies of calcium carbonate. And they can check a, a screening process to see you know, how much of that lime will go through different screens because that gives you an effectiveness um, to it versus uh, you know, a good pelletized lime, which of course uh, 98G is one where it's a very finely ground lime and it's pelletized together with starch binders. Um, but there's other products out there. Um, what are your thoughts on some of these things like beet lime, water treatment lime, eggshells, any thoughts on any of those as lime uh, products or as uh, other tools to correct acidity? I don't have any problems with any of the products that you named there uh, in general sense. So I think that each of them has their merits. Um, it can be tied to economic costs or distance from um, where your farm has is located compared to where those sources are at. It can be tied to, you know, what can I get done versus what I would like to get done or how I'd like to do it. Realistically, the things that I would encourage, no matter what material you're using, um, our products 
a conventional egg limestone, a alternative product like eggshells or sugar beet limestone is to make sure that you have a good handle on and an accurate, accurate analysis of what the characteristics are for each of those different materials that you're looking at, as well as making sure that you're aware of any um, contaminants or materials that you might be getting, but not doing so without knowledge of it. So you want to make sure that you have you know, if you're putting things out there that you're trying to improve the soil pH, it doesn't make sense to me to, to look at it and kind of overlook the standpoint or be unaware of that we maybe have some contaminants in there. And aluminum is one of the things that comes to mind that actually will make the soil conditions more acidic, not less. So putting something out there that has aluminum in it and at least Knowing that is a lot different situation than just putting it out there and saying, well, that's a pretty good material and coming back and doing a soil test a few years later or a few months later, depending on what, what's going on and discovering that, wow, we really didn't make a difference. And why is my pH levels actually went down from what they were before instead of improving? And I've seen some of those situations out there. And I think you've seen the same. Yeah, my favorite conversation is the one where it's, uh, hey, I put down this product and I thought, uh, you know, it'd bring my pH up, but it didn't. Um, what do you think the issue might be? I said, well, what was the analysis? And said, well, you know, I didn't have one. <laughs> I just can't help you. <laughs> it's not that tough to do. If, if a grower is going to deal with one of these products and they don't have an analysis, which they should, grab a gallon Ziploc bag, put a couple pounds in it and send it off to a reputable lab, you know, here in uh, Nebraska, Midwest Laboratories, Ward Laboratories, Servitech, AgSource, all of those labs should be able to give you a lime analysis. Again, the key things you're looking for, you know, what's the equivalent purity of the calcium carbonate, what's the finest of grind, and in the end, what's the effective calcium carbonate equivalent? Yes, definitely. And the moisture content certainly is one of those factors that the lab will use to to affect or adjust the lime score accordingly. Um, if you're bringing out a lot of extra moisture, you're hauling a lot of weights there that doesn't necessarily um, isn't free and also affects how well your your lining rates need to be adjusted. Um, one other thing I wanted to touch on a little bit is that we talked about pelletized limestone. We make a pelletized limestone, 98G is the product's name, but pelletized limestone by itself is nothing more than this physical description of the product. So it's limestone that's in a pellet. And I've, I've challenged growers and agronomists and others at different times about is that pelleted limestone means that it's nothing more than limestone in the pellet, which implies that it's an easier product to work with physically. You can get better application equipment. You can use different application equipment characteristics overall. So we're using something that we can use precision with and is used to applying fertilizers on. Those oftentimes are much different than using a, an ag lime applicator equipment or a lime belt or things like that where we're putting out there considerable product, um, usually tons per acre, that has a varying characteristics. So Pell Lime is a term that's been around for a long time. It certainly predates me. I'm not sure it predates you, however, because I know that you're several years older than myself. But um, pelleted limestone can oftentimes be misrepresented or misunderstood. And I'll give the analogy of if you have a limestone driveway. You've got rock that uh, you use to keep the cars and vehicles in, in better operating conditions, a lot less mud, things like that. So you put rock in your driveway. 
a lot of time that rock source is exactly the same location or the same quarry that the limestone that's used in agricultural uses comes from. It's just ground to different particle sizes. But I challenge you is that you could go out to your gravel driveway, grab a handful of material, sort out the stuff that's that's obviously oversized. So if it's um, bigger than your small finger, you're gonna throw it out of the sample. You could get a handful of material that's pretty small sands, um, pretty small material. You could squirt some sort of adhesive on it, like Elmer's glue. You could roll it around your hand and make yourself pell line. My response to that situation would be is, well, you've done it, now what? Um, it doesn't imply anything about its solubility, how well it's going to actually work in the soil, anything, except that now I have limestone in the pellet. So I look at it as if we're looking at a, a material, whether it's an ag limestone, whether it's an alternative limestone like eggshells, whether it's 98G or pelleted limestone or anything like that. If you don't know what was made out of or how it was processed, you're really at a, at a place where you need to have more information before you can make a good judgment. Yeah, that's a good point. So with 98G, it's truly a powder with a starch added to it as a binder that's made into pellets, correct? Yep, that's correct. So we break rock um, down into something that's minus 100 mesh. So if you took a, the screen in your house, the same um, one inch by one inch, how many wires go across that area, the higher the mesh size, the finer that material is. So something that's 100 mesh is considerably finer than 50 mesh. And we actually grind material that goes through something that's as fine as 325 mesh. We take those different finest of materials and combine them. So inside of each pellet is a combination of different particle sizes, but they're all of at least 100 mesh of particle size. Yep. Very good. One other thing we touched on briefly, Glenn, was transportation. You know, we kind of talked about you know, how far is it to go get something like a beet lime or a um, eggshell um, product to use for liming, but even just ag lime. You know, I'm a little spoiled in that I'm from Southwest Iowa. We've got limestone quarries probably every 15, 20 miles. Not all of them are still in operation, but Ag lime is fairly easy to get. When we get out into the sand hills in Nebraska or out into the Platte River Valley in some places, it can get a lot harder to find agricultural lime. And that's another place where pelletized lime can really shine. We could get 98G trucked in somewhere um, a lot uh, more economically sometimes than we can get ag lime or some of these other lime products with a lot of water in them. Yeah, most definitely. So um, people have, have not had some questions over time about why there's not a lot of limestone quarries in Nebraska compared to other states like Iowa or Minnesota. And I point out that my understanding, at least of some of the geography and geologic history of Nebraska going back many millions of years ago, so I, before even I think that you were born, Tim, is that a lot of that influence came from the West, came from the area that's today the Rocky Mountains. And so rock, you know, fell downhill, over time got transported to the east, both by water and by wind. And that's a lot different environment in Nebraska than is in some of the other states like Minnesota or Iowa, where there had a larger influence of things from the, from the north, like glaciation over time, where we've had these rock deposits 
and we've had negotiation and we've stratified things and kind of ground things across the landscape by a, uh, an ice sheet that weighed millions and millions of tons. And so the geological history um, is not really interesting to most folks, but it is interesting to the standpoint of what has happened in the past does affect what we're dealing with today. I appreciate that. Glenn, any last minute comments on Lyme? You know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today, Tim. Um, one of the things that I would just stress is, again, is that pH affects everything we do from soil management and nutrient management. And looking at their soil pH is something that I think a lot of growers have, have paying attention to, but I'm not sure that as many pay attention to that as they do something other like other nutrients like phosphorus. I understand that as an agronomist and former grower myself, I just want to emphasize that um, it's all tied together. So trying to change any certain aspect like phosphorus without paying attention to what the pH values are, for instance, isn't going to work out quite as successfully unless you're really, really lucky. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Glenn. Well, thank you very much for listening to Soil Talk today uh, with Glenn Howell from Calcium Products. I'm Tim Mundorf. We'll catch you again next time. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our Agronomy Focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.